the Retrosaurus podcast. My name's Dan. And I'm Retro Marky. Hi there. What have we got this week then, Mark? Uh, well, one of my favourite machines of all time and probably one of yours as well. It is the legendary Commodore 64. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the Commodore 64 today. A little bit late with the podcast this mm. week. Uh, and that was because we had a fantastic Mother's Day we over the weekend, did. which was... Uh, at our usual two-week recording period, so we we stowed that. <laughs> but yes, we're going to talk about mainly our memories uh, of the yeah, Commodore 64 today. Yeah, we've realised there's so much to say about it. We're going to split this into two parts, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to f- focus on the things that we experienced in our childhood with the Commodore 64, some memories about that, uh, and how the Commodore 64 came on the scene and what kind of mm-hmm. splash it made. But uh, there's another story to be told, really, about... Commodore 64 now because yeah. it's not a dead system by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, before we kick into it, can I just say our last podcast was about the Connex Multi mm-hmm. System, and I'm not going to let this podcast slip without just mentioning something else about it. <laughs> I surprised you with the Connex Multi System. Well, not so much the Connex Multi System, the Multi System China controller, which was based on uh, the Connex Multi System, which was a great thing to to, to see. I actually got it up and running. That's unbelievable. I thought that was going to be a real pain in the uh, proverbial. No, I managed to get a converter from the old joystick style to USB, uh, detected it as a four-access device. That's amazing. And uh, I I used it to fly Elite Dangerous. No way. Yeah, I did a test mission. (laughs) I I launched, I flew out of a station, I travelled systems, and I docked again. I was very proud of myself. And just just to say, Mm -hmm. it actually handled itself admirably. Yeah. Uh, and it says to me that, as a concept, the controller was mm. not just uh, some kind of uh, non-viable fancy product. Yeah. It would it would have worked really well. I think that's, uh, just to finish on this point, I think that's the sad thing for me, that the Connex got so far and so close. And, yeah, as you mentioned, you've got the controller, it works well, even to this day. Yeah. I'd love to try it on games like OutRun, uh, the arcade, using the main emulator, actually, and see how it does perform. I reckon it'd be awesome for those old coin-ops as well as the totally modern agree. games. I, I'm not finished with it yet. But I'm uh, sure. We'll be mentioning the Connex again and again, I'm sure, and the C64. Yeah. Uh, so should we crack on with the C64? Yeah, talking let's So, yeah, as you said, today's really our... We're starting with the 64 the first time around, as opposed to all the new stuff now that I'm going to talk about in the next episode. So let's go back. So at the time we had Electrons and the Beeb and a bit of Spectrum. I think mm-hmm. we had a friend or two, we played a bit of Spectrum. But really we were, we were playing the Beeb and the Electron. And then, I don't know how, but somehow a 64 appeared in your house. Um. Well, well I, had, I had seen the 64, Commodore 64. Um, we've talked about that Commodore 64, by the way, in my house, and I can't remember how it got there. I genuinely don't know. No, I don't. F- f- from memory. Because your not... grandfather had one, but it wasn't his, was it? It, it wasn't, wasn't his, no. And your dad was a copper, so there's no way, unless... I wouldn't have pinched nah. it. No, no, of course not, exactly. <laughs> I just Memory being what it is these days. But I had had friends who had gone for the Commodore 64 route, and this was the bread bin era, by the way, wasn't it? This is pre the the modern sixty four C. This is the old bread bin. Yeah. So it looked exactly like the uh, Vic twenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Slightly different colours, but yeah, same keyboard, same form factor. Yeah. Yeah. So I had seen these around, and I recognised instantly that this, although it was a just another eight bit system, wasn't just another eight bit system. It there was, was something, special. Something a bit different. So we were having a conversation about this earlier, and you mm. told me actually the Commodore sixty four was supposed to have been. A business yes. machine. Yeah. 
although we have our doubts about in this, fact, but go ahead. In fact, CBM means, or stands for Commodore Business Machines. So they started off making, I think it was, was it typewriters or something like that? Or photo? Calculators, probably. Because I remember the Commodore PET, the reason it was made from that steel, that metal, and weighs like half a tonne, was because they were recycling, I think it was metal from old typewriters. <laughs> made out of old battleships. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably. So, um, although the, uh, so you had, basically you had the Commodore Pet, of course, which was very much an educational slash business machine. Mm-hmm. And then the VIC-20 came along, which was more of a, a light-hearted kind of home, slightly, yeah, gaming kind of home system. Yeah. And then 64 came out, and the VIC-20 was still going strong. And I remember for a good year, maybe a couple it was still marketed and reviewed by the magazines as a business machine. So no one mentioned sprites, no one mentioned the incredible sound chip. It was uh, all about databases and spreadsheets. And it was a powerful machine for business, but um, as we know... There was, there was an ecosystem around it. Yeah. I remember my, my grandfather used to use it for things like word processing mm. and stuff like that. I was amazed about But when we took a look at it, and we were saying about this earlier on, like you said, there was a SID chip. Yeah. So that's the legendary sound chip. You don't need that for your spreadsheets, do you? You, you def- <laughs> definitely don't. Uh, it had uh, sprite uh, yeah. rendering capabilities. And also, the other big giveaway from my point of view was it had two joystick ports. Yes. Standard Atari joystick ports. Two of them. That's gaming all over, isn't it? That is set up as a games machine. Yeah. All built in. You've got amazing sound, sprites. Capability for two-player. Yeah, two joystick ports for two players, as you said. Uh, I think my theory, and it is only a theory, is that maybe the top brass at Commodore wanted to carry on with this new serious business machine. Mm Because don't forget, 64K of RAM was a lot at the time. I was going to say, 32K was the norm. Yeah. And it was was double that. Uh, Exactly. There didn't appear to be any caveats around that. It really did seem to make a difference. And of course, it was pricey. Mm-hmm. When it came out, it was a pricey machine. It was about, I think it was three nine nine. Yeah, uh, maybe went down to two nine nine. But yeah, and it was set up for things like disk drives. Again, those were expensive. Yeah, if you did get a Commodore printer disk drive, it's going to cost. It was going to cost a lot of money. I was going to talk about this later, but we might as well mm. raise it now. Now you've mentioned disk drive. So there are a lot of ah, really yeah. great <clears throat> things about the Commodore 64. The disk drive wasn't one of them. It was an incredibly slow thing yes. with its own uh, processor in it. If I remember. Yeah. Right. So. The first thing was it used a serial port, so that basically means you've only got one piece of data at a time going back and forth, mm-hmm. as opposed to lots. Yeah. In uh, oh, my my phone just went off. So with the BBC Micro, for example, and most other computers, they use parallel ports, which means you could get a lot of data at the same time. Yeah. The reason Commodore did this, um, as much as it does frustrate me still to this day, was compatibility backwards with the PET um, and the VIC twenty. And this was the same with the the data set as well, the cassette, mm-hmm. Commodore cassette system that was yeah. non-standard. You had to buy the Commodore yeah. data set. Um, I will defend them, though. I think the data set was a good idea because it was so reliable compared to the problems we used to have trying to find the right volume and tone. Yeah, so by comparison, <laughs> on uh, an Acorn Electron, for instance, yeah. you would have a cable that would come out, a specialist cable that would come out of the computer and run into the uh, audio ports of a cassette Mic and there's a mic in the ear, so one for listening, one for saving. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you'd have to continually yeah. play with the volume yep. to make sure you had it at the right level for the PC to be able to hear what was on the tape. And the the phrase we used to dread was data rewind tape, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Uh, and I remember constantly spending hours wanting to play some obscure game. Oh, and it would get to like the last couple of blocks. It'd be like. <laughs> 
4 just go a little bit further data yeah. rewind tape but on the Commodore 64 with that cassette deck yeah. it worked each and every time I it don't remember reliable. there ever being a problem with it yeah, yeah exactly and the disk drive works and is reliable it's just incredibly slow mm-hmm. um, it's more like akin to a, a, a speedy cassette deck in some ways you know what I mean Yeah. when you use a BBC Micro and go from, from cassette to disc it's like wow disc is almost instant it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a huge jump up Mm-hmm. in your experience whereas the I'd say the Commodore 64 disk drive feels like an enhanced speedier better cassette uh, equivalent but yeah. it's not quite there no. um, anyhow should we move on to uh, talking of uh, media the games we were playing at the time because we really bonded over this I think I know we mentioned we met <laughs> we met over the Acorn Electron in a <laughs> sense <laughs> Um, and we mentioned that in episode one, but I think the Commodore 64, there was something um, magical at that time. I think a combination of us, the games, discovering the Commodore 64, and also the programmers discovering what they could do with it. And it just started to shine as being, I mean, this is my opinion, but superior to the Spectrum and the Beeb. It mm-hmm. really got, and the gap got bigger, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a bit of a, a different beat, beast to the beat, but I I think the memory that I've got of it was um, there was a journey. And the story of the Commodore 64 was just how much can you get out of this box? Yeah. So it started off, uh, again, this was something we were talking about earlier, the quality of the games didn't realise the potential of the machine, but very slowly mm-hmm. the developers started understanding the tricks yeah. and uh, you know the features properly. And the quality of the games kept on going up yep. and up and up and up. So, you know, there were some groundbreaking games. First co-op. Of course, instance. my all-time favourite game, Whizball. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd like to actually mention, I don't know if you remember, but I clearly remember you phoning me up and uh, when I was living in a, in, in, in a bungalow, and <laughs> which is not really relevant but to the story, but I remember you phoning me up and saying, <laughs> I've got this amazing game come over after tea and bring a joystick. So I I remember jumping on my BMX with my Competition Pro joystick, which yeah. I absolutely loved that thing. Um, we were talking about this as well earlier. The joystick at that time was... Um, I see it in my nephew now with his Xbox controller. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you've got one for your mates and then you've got your own controller, which is like, mm, that's kind of for me to use and me only. Yeah. So I had my Competition Pro, which I loved. And you had a joystick you loved that was very different, didn't you? It was you? a Conic Speed King, mm. which was one of these incredibly well-micro-switched uh, tactile devices, ergonomic devices. It was brilliant, palmy hand stuff. I never liked it, but I get why you did. It I was just it. it was two different approaches, wasn't it? The Competition yep. Pro was that classic, almost mimicking the arcade. Mm-hmm. A big lump that you hold on to and move up down left and right and a fire button yeah. whereas the conics was more of um had a bit more finesse didn't it it's, it it did yeah and you literally held it in your hand almost like a trigger of a gun it was yeah. reminded me a bit of the n64 controller with the trigger mm-hmm. underneath anyway and yeah you said come over try this amazing game um and it was whizball yeah so you discovered whizball and i remember coming over and not only was it an amazing game with amazing music really unique yeah. I've never seen anything like it before since. If you try and describe it to p- uh, people... You sound a, nuts. Yeah, people think, well, this is really <laughs> crazy. So you're a wizard in the shape of a ball. 
you have a cat in a little device that you yep. can summon and it flies around. And you, you collect colour because this black because the landscape's gone black and white and it's protected by aliens that are trying to shoot you. And occasionally this police turn up. Yeah, the police <laughs> turn up like because you're taking too long. Like, hold on, the game's now. <laughs> and then you had the bonus. You had the bonus stage where you turn back into the wizard and mix the colours together into a. It was an acid trip of a game. It was a weird one. It really was. But there were th- some things that defined it. So the multiplayer, cooperative multiplayer. Yeah was one thing. You couldn't do that straight away. You had to earn that as part of the game, That's didn't you? That's right. And what was interesting was, I mean, we talked about this earlier, there were other co-op games, I think, at the time, but they were more like, okay, it's a one-player game, but you can split the screen and have your mate play if you want. Mm-hmm. But it was an inferior experience. The thing about Whizball was, at least for you and I, was that was the first game where it was enhanced yeah. by two players. It was like, oh, so I can be the cat and do all the kind of, like, mm. I'll protect the ball, and you do the, you know... Which was a cool thing to be back in the days of Red Dwarf One. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing, and the other thing was, of course, um, you were two different characters. Yeah. So one was the cat, uh, and one was the wizard, and the wizard was was bigger and chunkier, but kind of in in control of collecting things and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The wizard would, the whiz ball would die, and that's yeah. game over. The cat would die. It's not game over. You'd have to the whiz, the wizard would have to get the cat back. So the cat was kind of an assistant. And, and moved differently and was smaller and more sprightly. You could get in, get the enemies that the wizard, the, you know, the whiz ball was um, the maybe thing, intimidated by. The gameplay was one thing. Yeah. But the music, I believe it was oh. Martin, Martin Galway, was it? It was, yeah. Hell, that was something else. So you had a perfect demonstration mm-hmm. of a great gaming experience, cooperative gaming experience, and it really kind of subtly ramped up the power uh, you had or, that electric guitar, didn't you, almost? Yeah, remember? A, a guitar sound. But it used to kind of ramp up the excitement yeah. of this music as it crescendoed up. It was a great, great game. Yeah, and just to finish on Whizball, there was the sound effects in the background mm-hmm. that I still love to this day that are missing in all the other versions. It's kind of a generic sci-fi... It's really yeah. hard to describe it, but it's got this subtle atmospheric science, science fiction... Kind Je of, ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi, yeah. So, amazing game. Uh, I'm sure on my channel I've probably mentioned it a bunch of times uh, on Retro Marky mm-hmm. YouTube channel. So. Have you got a YouTube channel, Mark? I have, and funny enough, what was it called? Uh, Retro Marky, that was a <laughs> We'll mention that later. So, we better move on from Whizball, because I could talk all day about Whizball. Um, yeah. Other games of the time, what do you remember that, you know... Well, uh, there was one that springs to mind immediately. So, we're talking very much about uh, coming from our Electron background. Yeah. Um, I love the Electron, mm. and I understand entirely why my dad thought it was the right thing to get. And it was, because, for example, coding in BASIC, Mm -hmm. from the educational perspective, was imminently more accessible on the Acorn Electron than it was trying to code on the Commodore 64. It was a nightmare. Yeah, the one downside to the 64 is it is not an easy machine. You have to poke everything. Yeah. Which basically means, I mean, it's not exactly machine code, but you need to look up tables and, you know, you can't just type in, make sound 3, 10, which is like a noisy sound. It's all, yeah. So we had come from that background, but mm-hmm. it wasn't conceived, I don't think, as uh, a gaming machine in the same way that the no. Commodore 64, whether they say it or not, <laughs> yeah. was definitely geared towards being a gaming machine. So the one, the eye-opener for me, funnily enough, was Ghostbusters. And the reason being, it was probably one of the first times that and uh, Mission Impossible yeah. both had speech in it. Yeah. And, and good speech colourful. as well. Yeah, it, it was good. Yeah, so, some great speech in it, and that was a kind of head turner for me. I thought, hold on, this system—you can yeah. do things on this that you can't. 
you know, with the Electron with its three-channel yep. sound, of which you could use one at any one time. You know? <laughs> Still it, bugs it, you to this day, doesn't it? That, that does. Well, that and the fact, the other thing, we were talking about the joystick experience yeah. on the Commodore oh. 64. Compared to the Acorn Electron, you had to have a separate cartridge. You had to load up yep. the drivers beforehand. And, and half the time they didn't work, There's did no they? compatibility, no. 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 So, uh, you know, that's not knocking the Acorn Electron because I think it's always going to be one of my favourites. Yeah, I mean, but... the first Elite I ever played was on the Acorn Electron. And did I feel like I had an inferior experience or I loved... I, in fact, I had a best mate with the Spectrum. Yeah. And um, there were some good games on the Spectrum that I was envious of. But I remember dragging him around saying, OK, the Electron might be inferior, but play Elite on it. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is... Way better than the Spectrum one. Oh, it beat the Commodore 64 as well. I think oh, of course, one of the few yeah. games that it did. But uh, yeah, we're going off at a complete tangent. So <laughs> you are. asked me about the games. I said Mission Impossible, which was a kind of uh, platform game w- with great uh, animation for the character. Of course, and yeah. And Ghostbusters was just like a weird take on the Ghostbusters movie. Yeah, well, not a great game to be honest. But I know what you mean about. I kind of liked it, but it was just <laughs> weird. And uh, it said Ghostbusters. Oh, and he slimed me. Oh, really? I forgot all about that. So, um, also, Times of Law was another one. We talked about that already a little bit, but... um... Times of Law was uh, yet another game where I think it demonstrated that Commodore 64 could do things that other computers couldn't in terms of the scope of the game. Yeah. So, interestingly, that's a Chris Roberts game. Oh, right. So, developed... uh, It was an Origin product, but Chris Roberts was behind it. He of Star Citizen and Wing Commander and uh, various other games. Was the Ultima series also Origin? That's a huge PC, yeah. I I genuinely don't know about that. But uh, certainly, Times of Law had scale behind it. It was a top-down scrolling adventure. You could choose multiple characters. There was a a lot to to do in terms of interaction with the NPCs, non-player characters, Mm -hmm. to discover... Um, you know, plot and uh, adventure. Kind of like a sort of, not clone of Zelda, but definitely that sort of genre of the early Zelda, the top-down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so a Commodore 64 version of that. But the thing about it, I don't think either of us had really experienced anything of that depth before. No. And we sat down and played this game, and all credit to them, the the depth of it and the way that it led you into the adventure was fantastic. And it was a, a first-time experience, and we played it from start to finish all the way through. Yeah. I don't think either of us were disappointed with uh, with that game in any capacity. Uh, again, the music behind it. I'm not sure who wrote the music for that. I should look it up. But it yeah. was fantastic music as well. You know what? I think um, before that, I, do you remember? I mean, really, adventure games were primarily just text-based before that. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure they were, they were good experiences. But as a kid, looking at a black-and-white text screen and typing in Go North, mm-hmm. it didn't interest me. So there's a whole period where... I think the, the whole adventure genre just didn't interest me. And then Times of Law, mm-hmm. that was a whole different experience. And ever since then, I think I've been a fan of R- I, a fan of RPGs. And I think that's because of Times of Law. Yeah. That we, whole experience was just something completely I'm sure we new. dedicated a whole summer to that game. <laughs> oh, definitely. You got your money's worth yeah. with it. And uh, the, the packaging that came with it was a great box. Yeah, the map that I mentioned came we with put the on the wall. Yep. Yeah, that map sat there on the wall for months on end. It did. Um, so I was just thinking... Moving on from adventures, um, Stunt Car Racer was another one, mm-hmm. and that sort of leads me into the Amiga a little bit. And uh, our, our good friend, Mr. Philip Coe, yeah, a yeah. uh, good friend of ours. Yeah. I mean, he's a podcaster himself. He was another one of our <laughs> our characters, as we call them. What we mean by that is affectionately, 
one of the best people that we used to hang around with. Yeah. We had Andy P, we've mentioned, and Mr. Philip Coe, who had 64 with disk drive. He, got, he had the Amiga way before we did. Yeah, he had a keyboard like Jean-Michel Jarre. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah. I forgot about we that. We went to Docklands with him. That was such we a great Docklands experience. Went to Docklands with him. That was brilliant. Um, but Stunt Car Racer, so the C64, the one thing lacking was revs. Mm-hmm. At least, well, revs did actually come out on the 64, but... What I mean is we were playing race on the BBC Micro, Mm -hmm. and that was an incredibly good, still to this day, racing simulator. 3D, Mm -hmm. fast and smooth. And the 64, that's the one thing it couldn't do very well, was any game that was sort of 3D polygons. It was a sprite machine, wasn't it? Exactly. So it was great for sprites, but at the moment you start trying to draw 3D, it chugged a bit. Now, it's interesting... You said, uh, so you and Phil had Stunt Car Racer for the Amiga. Mm. I had it for the Commodore 64. You did something on that uh, with the Amiga where you hooked up and linked up. Yeah, you know what? I I almost forgot about that until thinking about today's podcast. Um, Phil came over with his Amiga and we had a cable. I don't Mm. remember what sort of cable, um, but we had a cable. We linked the two Amigas together. And this was back in, you know, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And we played head to head on two separate Amigas, Stunt Car Racer. And that was something that you yeah. couldn't really do on the Commodore 64. I th- still think the Commodore 64 did an admirable job of it. I game. do, yeah. It was still a fun to play game, although the frame rate was just a. It wasn't great, but it was it was acceptable. It was good enough. It was just on that cusp of like, okay, any slower, and it would be unplayable. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd be surprised. I've even looked at hard driving the coin up recently, and it's it's not as smooth as I remember. So obviously back then, shifting polygons was still a challenge. And don't forget, uh, the C64 only had less than one megahertz processor. Mm-hmm. The B was and the Electron were two, yeah. and the Z80 in the Spectrum and the Amstrad was four. Now, the four megahertz of the Z80 has not doubled the speed of a 6502. Mm-hmm. It's probably about the same. Um, but that's a whole topical conversation <laughs> for another time. But yeah, the C64 weakness was the CPU wasn't very... Very, uh, very quick, yeah. Crunching numbers, and that's why Polygon gains. I think Elite was okay, but it certainly wasn't the best version, was it? Compared to the BBC Micro, for example. Yeah. So the, the Commodore sixty four rose to the top in terms of the eight bit machines. Oh yeah. It had sure. some great development. Again, Jeff Minter was in there. Mutant Camel games again, and we, we know that no other eight bit computer really could compare or took off. It was yeah. the they was almost game for they almost stopped developing I think for things like the Beeb, Electron almost to the point I would say that games the, the big British games companies that we all love and know, Imagine, Ultimate um, Houston mm-hmm. Thalamus etc they were mostly just developing for the 64 at that time and yeah. the Spectrum as well but it always felt like if you want you remember we were talking about the coin ops before the ultimate version is the coin op yeah the C64 was the ultimate home version of, you know, 99% of games, I think. I think you'd agree with that. Yeah, I would would entirely. Not only were the games the, themselves the best, Yeah. but uh, back in that era, it wasn't a case of uh, C game, play game. You had to wait, like we said, uh, with a disk drive or, or a, a cassette. cassette. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, invariably, that meant you'd have a beautiful title page and a little tune to play as you were waiting for the game to play. But also... On the Commodore 64, they had quite an effective thing called Invader Load for oh, many of the games. I was just about to mention that. Invader. Only the Commodore 64 could not only... I mean, it, I remember, and I'm sure a lot of people still do, loading games on the machine purely for the loading experience. The load, the, I mean, the ocean loading music is classic still yeah. to this day. 
And I remember the first time I saw Invader load, I was completely like, this machine is incredible. It is loading a game, playing music, and you can play Space Invaders whilst it's loading. That is mind-blowing. Yeah. And never to be seen on any other system or close to it. <laughs> You'll never see that again, will you? The only close one to that was, I mean, I wanted to talk about Thalamus as well, because mm-hmm. they were huge. And they're back, by the way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'll have to mention that maybe next week. Oh, fantastic. Thalamus are officially back, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a game called Delta, which was the um, precursor to the classic Armalite. And that had loading music, but it had the four-channel split between bass, drums... Um, synth and solo or something like that yeah and whilst it was loading you could change from uh level 42 bass to the nolan sisters kind of bass lines to the casio tone you could change the synths around so you could literally and i used to love doing this because i connected my 64 to my hi-fi speakers of my record player mm-hmm. and i used to load up the music uh, load up Delta for the music and, and play around with it see what combinations I could get that's amazing it is absolutely amazing but yeah the invader load was the top of the wow wow factor for me um, the Nolans <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know so uh, anyway um, so Thalamus can we just briefly talk because they really didn't make games for anything but the 64 and then later the Amiga and the ST but that was a good. That's a good example of a company that didn't bother with the Beeb, the Amstrad, yep. the Spectrum, because there was such a big market at that point. Mm-hmm. And they, some of their games, I mean, Armalite, is still absolutely mind blowing. We must have spent yeah. hours playing that. Another cooperative experience. Bring your own joystick. Get yeah. together. It's not something I ever beat, but I, no, I didn't either. need to. The experience was just absolutely yeah. phenomenal. There's a sideways scroller, um, sort of in that R type kind of. Sort of vaguely in the R-type kind of direction, mm. but it was its own game in its own right. It wasn't trying to be R-type. It wasn't an R-type clone. There were some good R-type clones. Um, Denaris was one, I think Rainbow Arts. Um, and Thalamus also, so they did Delta, Armalite. Um, what was that game? Hawkeye, did you ever play that platformer? And their graphics were, and their graphics and music were always very distinctive. Mm-hmm. You knew a Thalamus game from a screenshot. How do they get that kind of uniqueness, do you wonder? Yeah. I mean, there was definitely something about the quality of their games that made you feel like you bought yeah, a, a branded product, as it were. So yeah. they had their, their character stamped all over it. I think to finish on the games of the time, we've got to mention Laser Squad as being another unique standout mm-hmm. Commodore 64 game. Yeah. One of your favourites, I think. You discovered that one again. So turn-based, uh, yeah. set in the future. Yeah. Um, sort of a strategy. Strategy, yeah. And you could play it one or two player. Yeah, it was very addictive, wasn't it? Fantastic game. I've got some great memories of playing uh, Laser Squad. I still play it now on uh, the C64 emulator. Well, I, technically, I don't need to play it on an emulator. Yeah. we both got Commodore 64s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've just not got the space to set mine up at the moment. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I love using real hardware, but sometimes you're just at your PC and you think, oh, I don't, you know, watching a YouTube video on a 64 game, you think, I never played that. I'll just chuck it on an emulator and see if it's something to invest in. Yeah, uh, we will. I think we will do a podcast or at least a segment on emulation mm-hmm. versus real hardware. And I think I'm a good person to talk about that because I do both. And I'm not pro or con any of them. They've got their uses, um, especially emulators in modern times. Yeah, um, their use for development and cross development, and a lot of the home amazing homebrew games we're getting now on the 64 mm-hmm. I think are really helped by emulators and I even I, I make um, multi-carts myself using flash memory 
and I test it. Mm-hmm. So I make up a list of games, put on a cartridge image of a, um, a megabyte, and I run it on Vice Emulator to make sure it works before porting it onto my real hardware. Makes sense. The Commodore 64 experience back then, again, was mm. promoted through magazines. Mm-hmm. So there were several magazines that you wouldn't go to an internet, you would go to WH Smith's, you would take a look on the shelves at the magazines, Yeah. keep your eyes low. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the magazines... They all have tapes. Well, most of them have tapes. Or, would tend to come with a demo yeah. cassette on it, which was a big thing. Or and floppy disk or later on in the 16 bits. Yeah. yeah, would lead you into various games that you might buy in the future, but also do detailed reviews of games as I'll well. i tell you what, though. Sorry to sort of interject a little bit, but mm-hmm. I'm so excited about this topic. Do you remember flexi discs where you could... It was like a, it was a, a, a piece of plastic that went on a real record mm-hmm. that you could load a game from or a demo. No. <laughs> Good answer. I do. Um, they, didn't, they didn't last very long, but pre the cassettes you were talking about, your computer was one I remember quite vividly. They had uh, rec- records, flexi records with yeah. programs on. And then, yeah, they went, takes became the mainstream, didn't they? Because they're cheap and easy to see. C15's worth of data yeah. on the front, yeah. And they even got to the point, I don't know if you remember, but it got so competitive that some magazines would have two tapes or two floppy disks. And you'd have a house full of demos. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So I think that's probably most of the games that I remember as being significant at that time. For the R type conversion, the R type conversion, yeah, that's a good point. That was an amazing. That's that's an amazing example of how to convert a coin op. The gameplay is there. The feeling is there. And it's worth mentioning that the yeah. intro-outro music of this podcast has been half-inched from that very <laughs> coin-up conversion on the Commodore 64. Yeah. So, And the reason we half-inched it is because legally you can half-inch and get away with it. You can't inch. You can't full-inch. No. You can't full-inch. You can half-inch. In fact, we quarter-inched at the beginning and quarter at the end to get around the legal ramifications. <laughs> But that was, I mean, that was a brilliant coin-up. So you said earlier on, you know, the Commodore 64 was the 8-bit system that was going to most likely give you that coin-up experience. But obviously... Yeah, it started to not do that so much. Yeah, as time went on, technology developed and the 16-bits came out. We became aware of the power of the Amiga and uh, the ST that was coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, And the the Conics, of course. Archimedes, Conics. We had uh, Mega Drive and Snares all coming out. And a lot of these recognised that gaming was a big thing and so had hardware ready, cheap hardware ready to provide you with a a, a relatively decent gaming experience and so the Commodore 64 though the thing about it was it didn't keel over and die, it did fight the good fight for some time. Oh yeah, it was uh, a graceful death wasn't it Mm -hmm. well it's not, I would argue it's not even died it went into retirement and it came back out again, we'll talk about that next week Mm But yeah, I mean, there was there was a sort of a crossover point where, I mean, it, it always happens with new systems. It takes programmers a while to figure out the hardware. Mm-hmm. So you had games like New Zealand Story, yeah. which on the sixty four compared to the Amiga, I was happy with both versions. Mm-hmm. I'd play whatever I had. If I had an Amiga, I'd play the Amiga one. Yeah. If I went to someone's house with the sixty four, it's the same game. It's lower resolution. Maybe it's a bit slower to load, but the gameplay was there. Mm-hmm. And then, but then after some time. The Amiga versions became the dominant. So Captain Blood was really an Amiga game that mm-hmm. was ported to the 64. And if you really want to play it, you want to play the Amiga one, don't you? Know? Well, the, well, actually, the, I think the the best one, funnily enough, this is one of these outliers, is uh, the Atari ST one. Is to it? do with the language, yeah, that's another conversation entirely. But definitely the Commodore 64 version was yeah. a poor imitation. It couldn't keep up with 
the uh, vision behind the soundtrack no. that they had, which was a Jean-Michel Jarre, yeah, a, a, a port of that, as it were. And very slowly, there were games that uh, it just couldn't keep up with. So I remember the last one I was really impressed with was mm-hmm. an arcade conversion of Power Drift. And the yeah, Com- that was well done, wasn't it? Commodore 64 version of that was well done, but yeah. there just comes to a point where it yeah. becomes futile as people yeah. moved on with uh, technology. And I don't know how they found the money for the Amiga, but they did. It you know became the focus of developers really where they wanted to break ground in terms of doing something new. Things like Star yeah. Glider Two, you couldn't do no, that no. on uh, uh, a Commodore 64. That was filled in polygons, wasn't filled it? Polygons, yeah, the processing right. power for that is. Mm-hmm. A whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah, and that that is a whole summer spent in Philco's <laughs> house, sitting with him as we went through that. The amount of hours we spent on that were whilst playing with his organ. <laughs> no, that's that's not, Actually, no. not for this podcast. No, I don't think that is. We'll cut that out. <laughs> and so, I think to wrap up, the other thing is um, we talked you know, a lot about software, but we haven't mentioned. I think the other thing that really kept the sixty-four and the Amiga alive mm-hmm. was the demo scene. Yeah. especially the Amiga, I think, um, well, it, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the quick story. I bought an Amiga purely for games like Shadow of the Beast mm-hmm. and the demos that I saw on Phil Coe's Amiga. Yeah. It just, you know, it was a very expensive machine. I think I mentioned this in another podcast, uh, in the Connex podcast. It was a very expensive machine, but I saw these things were enough to sway me. Wow, mm-hmm. I'm getting new experiences from this. The music's amazing. The Amiga visually got better and better. So, um, and that really was the end of the 64, at least until recently. And mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in uh, next week's episode. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, we talked half an hour about this. Mm. And we talked about some of the games that were great for us. But the, the this is the tip of the iceberg. Though, the isn't it? ecosystem for the Commodore 64 is um, massive. Yeah. So everybody will have their own memory. How, why have you not mentioned this classic game or that classic game? Well, put well, them in the comments. <laughs> yeah, if, if you want to, to comment back, feel free. But um, yeah, there's too many, isn't there? Yeah, you can't account for everybody's memories. We can only account for our own. And I, I didn't mention at the beginning. I can't believe I forgot, but it is, still is the, the the biggest selling home system of all time. Wow. Yeah, in the millions. No one really knows, but I think five could be five, ten million machines were sold worldwide. Mm-hmm. How many? It, how, how many of them had that gold chip in it? <laughs> I've got uh, what the ceramic one. The ceramic, yeah. But yeah, not very many. Okay. <laughs> and of course, you had the silver label. That's another collectible one. But um, I think, uh, yeah, we, we could talk all day. We need to sort of start wrapping this up. So we'll carry on next week with modern C sixty four gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, what are you playing at the moment, Dan? Anything uh, exciting? Uh, just this and that. Uh, I've been playing Elite Dangerous. Funnily enough, multiplayer with that with my old man, which has been a great experience. It's been fun. Uh, I've also been taking a look at Star Citizen. We're going to be talking at some mm-hmm. point in the future about David Braben and also Chris Roberts yeah. and uh, the evolution of space games. So it seems pertinent to be taking a look at what's going on in that. But uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing. What about you? Uh, I haven't been playing a lot of modern sort of PC stuff at the moment. I did play the Fear expansion pack, which is a good example of old school, good value for money. I paid a couple of quid and got about six hours gameplay. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we'll probably talk about these kind of things another time. So yeah, I've not been playing a lot of modern stuff. I have, however, been playing a lot of MAME. So MAME is a piece of software to simulate arcade games. Can I can I just say, I did notice on your channel you're doing an awful lot of comparison videos. Yeah. Now, so between Coin-Op yeah. and 8-bit versions of it. So what's that about? It's um it's something that 
it's something about the way my brain's always worked. I always compared things. I guess it's maybe uh, just just one of those ways my brain works. And I think I we were talking a lot about the coin ops. I've been mm-hmm. thinking a lot about them from doing this podcast uh, and thinking about how does the home version compare to the arcade version and what did we want back home and did we get it and yeah. our type we got it. Other games were badly ported. So what kind of coin ops have you done comparisons on? Um at the moment, I've done mostly things like quite early ones, like the Williams classics, like Sinistar and Defender. Mm-hmm. So the BBC Micro stands up very well with Defender. Mm-hmm. And uh, a bunch of others on Retro Marquee. So I've done a playlist, so you can go straight to them. Okay. Juno First, one of my favourite classic games. Definitely Our worth checking on out, there. Yeah. yeah, so I won't give it give any more away, but uh, yeah, we'll put a link in the YouTube version of the podcast for that. Yeah, okay, that's good. And I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. Inter- sorry to sorry to interject slash interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to mention more C64 stuff. There's tons on on my Retro Market YouTube as well. Repairs and mods and all sorts of things. Okay. So we'll we'll talk again in future. You've got a lot to say about the the current scene with Commodore yes. 64. I got to admit, I was pretty much amazed when you talked about uh, Wi-Fi enabled mm. uh, BB board, BBS, yeah, yeah, BBS stuff uh, adapters and all the kinds of things you can do in 16 megabyte RAM expansions, all sorts of and things. Some of the demos and things that you can do these days yeah. are pretty amazing. But we'll talk about that then. Thank you very much for that. Um, we will speak to you again. Well, we don't speak because podcasts are actually all transmit and they receive. I love it when people say that. They say, let's have yeah, a conversation. I'll see you next about time. Like, yeah, yeah. How are you going to see me from. Yeah, how's yeah. that going to work? It, exactly. This is a podcast. It's all transmit. Yeah. We will be transmitting to you again in about two weeks' time. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was Rep Shay Markey. Thank you very much for listening. Ciao. Cheerio. What was the last thing you said? I can't remember. I totally <laughs> lost my D- data rewind tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>